Well, listen, let's find our Bibles. Let's open them to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're in verses 1 through 20 today. You'll find that on page, uh, in that book rack Bible in front of you, page 1521, I believe. 1521. Let's find our way there. Today we're going to look at rules. How many like rules? Yeah, rules are a part of life, aren't they? Have you ever heard the property rules for toddlers? Here's how they go. If, if I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. It's mine, and it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> rules. Rules are a part of life. What rules do we follow? I mean, there's rules everywhere. And who really doesn't want rules? I mean, when I watch a basketball game, I want rules. You know, sporting, you know, you can't, you can't have a good competition without rules. I'm, I'm glad that there are rules like you shouldn't be texting while you drive, right? I mean, they're good rules. Rules are everywhere. And there are rules in God's Word. They're the Ten Commandments. They're things that God wants us to know and follow in our lives. But there's a lot of other rules, too, that kind of seep into our Christian existence, our Christian life. And we're going to learn about today what Jesus has to say about rules that really don't come from Him. What kind of rules are you following today in your life? What rules really matter? And what does the role of rules play in the life of a believer? We're going to see all that here in chapter 15 of Matthew. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who causes his father or mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. These are what make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. All right. Well, this is an interesting text, and this little section of Matthew is a reminder to us that we're in a place where there's growing opposition to the life and teaching of Jesus. It started back a few chapters ago in chapter 12, verse 40, where it says the Pharisees went out plotting as to how they might kill Jesus. That's a pretty clear signal that Jesus and the religious leaders were not on the same page. And when we come to this particular text, we see again that we're going deeper into this controversy between the religious leaders and Jesus. And I see three things here in the text that I want you to see about rules and keeping them. And the first thing I'm going to show you this morning is that religious people are known for the rules they make, not necessarily the ones that God gives us, and that they tell others how to keep them. Religious people are really good with making rules. (laughs) In fact, if you want to put this into a principle, verses 1 through 3, I would say that some people go to great lengths to point out where we've crossed the line in our relationship with God and somehow messed up. Now, I say that because if you look carefully at verses 1 and 2, you may have missed it, but these Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus all the way from Jerusalem. At this present time, he's up in the Galilean area, and they've traveled all the way from Jerusalem to see something more about Jesus. You see, there's something about this journey that they took that was not about uh, complimenting Jesus, but looking for something which they could find him at fault at doing. This is a group that has an agenda. Have you ever been around people that have an agenda? This is a group that had an agenda. And this is really not so much about the disciples not washing their hands before they eat. It's about finding a way to trap Jesus in something. And if you are a person like that looking for something to fault Jesus in, it doesn't take you very long because soon enough they observe the disciples doing something that they felt Rabbi Jesus should have been really clear with his disciples about. And what it was about was the fact that his disciples weren't following the tradition of the elders. Now that word tradition there is an interesting word. Some of us have traditions in our families. Maybe you had a tradition over Easter weekend, last weekend, of the kind of food you ate or the place that you went with your family. Maybe you have some kind of tradition around other holidays in your life or a birthday or an anniversary or celebration. Traditions are a part of our lives. That's not what they're referring to when they talk about the tradition of the elders. What they were specifically dealing with was a body of information that rabbis would pass down from the written law of God in sort of summing up and giving uh, some clarity to what the law of God was about. So, for example, if you were reading Scripture and you read that you should not work on the Sabbath... It was the rabbis that tried to interpret that in a way so that you could understand what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. For example, the question could be, well, can you eat on the Sabbath? Well, yeah, I guess we need to eat, the rabbis would say, but what about cooking on the Sabbath? Well, now that's pushing it a little bit because cooking is a form of work. And so the rabbis, the rabbinical code, had lots of instructions about how you could stay clean how you could keep yourself from defiling yourself before God by keeping the Sabbath law. And there were literally hundreds of Sabbath laws. How far you could walk on the Sabbath, ways that you went through doorways and entrances, uh, ways that you cleansed yourself and so forth. And this was all part of what we know as a body of material known as the Mishnah. Everybody say the word Mishnah. 
Okay, that's, that's a body of material that was rabbinical code for interpreting the law of God. I hope you're following. This is really important for this text. So eventually over time, these, the, the Mishnah or these rabbinical laws gained enough traction to where the people kind of had a hard time discerning between the rabbinical law and the law of God. And the Pharisees that were meticulous about keeping the law of God were like these little policemen always looking around for people violating the law. Because they felt like if they could stay clean before God, if they could just do all the laws the way God wanted to do, they would be in right standing with God. And of course, Jesus comes along and he just blows all this out of the water because it's always a heart issue when it comes to following God. It's not a matter of keeping the laws and the rules because in a sense, none of us can actually keep them. The law, the Bible tells us, was not given in order that we keep it, but to show us that we were transgressors of the law. The law was given as a mirror to show us that we have missed the mark of God's perfection and His holiness. And not that we throw the law out, but we know that the law can't save. If the law could save, we just keep the law, the Bible says, but Jesus came along to show us a more perfect law, the law of liberty and the law of love, that it's an issue of the heart that God's looking at. And the law just becomes a mirror of showing us how far away we are from ever achieving the will of God in our lives. And so here we've got this, this rabbinical law that's sort of in this, in this uh, the controversy with what Jesus is, is doing here or what the disciples are doing. And by the way, just a little note, this is not about hygiene at all. This is not, you know, like when I grew up, my parents, I would come in from playing outside, go wash your hands. You know, because my mom knew I, used to, I had dirty habits. I liked picking up cigarette butts and doing all these kind of weird stuff. I even ate cigarette butts as a kid. I did. It just popped into my mind. I haven't told that in a long time, but I did. I did. It took a while to kick that habit in my life. Believe me, it was weird. Um, no, a true story. So my parents always, go wash your hands. So I'd go wash my hands. That was, that was a good thing. That's hygiene. It's proper hygiene. We taught our kids the same way and still to this day. Washing hands is good. But this is not what they're dealing with. They're dealing with the fact the rabbis and the religious leaders are dealing with an Old Testament law coming from the book of Leviticus where the priests of the Old Testament, when they went in to do their duties, would ceremonially wash their hands. And that, according to rabbinic laws, sort of filtered into when people gathered around their tables at home, they would carry out the same uh, ceremonial washings. Not necessarily a command of God, but the rabbinical code saying if you really want to stay undefiled, you'll, you'll ceremonially wash. You'll make sure that you're undefiled. Not a hygiene issue, but that you've properly addressed the God of the universe as you sit down at a table to eat from the food that He's provided for you. And so it's interesting that uh, this is kind of what's going on. And let me just, just remind you once again that another thing that's going on here is not so much about the disciples blowing it, but finding a way to blame Jesus for something. Now, this stuff still happens to us today, by the way. I think religious people are pretty good at handing out rules. Some of us come from backgrounds where we were uh, taught under sort of what I would call legalistic or judgmental oppressive systems of faith where there was so many rules that you had to keep, and if you didn't keep them, you were just always in trouble. Some of us have actually been hurt in the church because of rules made by men, by people that have said, this is what you do if you're going to live a holy life. And we could go down a litany of things, 
Uh, and, and I should probably uh, give you a few examples. Uh, the previous generation of mine was reminded and told some people came out of a background that if you were a Christian didn't want to be undefiled, you didn't ever play playing cards. And you would never go to a, like a pool hall because those things were sinful. And those, those were things were taught. That's kind of like rabbinical code. Where does the Bible say we shouldn't play with cards, you know, playing cards? Now, there's a lot in the Bible about gambling and all that. I'm just talking about a simple playing of cards. And then there was, in, even in my generation as a young boy, I remember sort of the arguments of should Christians go to movies or not? And I mean, even just last century, there was a, a kind of a movement in Christianity that you would not ever go to a stage play because that would defile you as a Christian. There was a big write-up in the newspaper last week about in the last century, uh, at, the early, at the turn of the 1900s, when there was a, a church uh, that was presenting the Passion Play, and there was a huge uproar of Christians in the city of San Francisco that said, that's defiling, you can't do a stage play and depict the life of Christ. And so all these rules, some of us grew up with these kinds of oppressive rules. But it goes further than that. It goes into things like the kinds of music and instrumentation a church should have. When I was growing up in a little Baptist church across the bay, uh, it was all about the organ, uh, you know, the, the musical instrument, the organ. And then there was kind of a transition. You remember the Jesus Revolution and a lot of the music, Randy Stonehill and different groups that kind of emerged sort of like Christian rock music. Do you remember all this? And I think this is like way past now, but there was a season where churches were having huge fights about, you can't take the organ away, that's the sanctified instrument. <laughs> and, and you could never put drums on a stage in front of a church. I mean, that would be like heresy to have drums. Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> and guitars and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, it sounds funny to us, but there was a generation that really fought over this kind of stuff. Was that the law of God or was it the law of men? It was the law of men. It was, it was people interpreting things. And like, you know, that filters into all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, could you dance as a Christian? You know, could, could you go to a dance? Could you celebrate in that means? Could Christians have alcohol with a meal? Would that be? And there's people that come from all, even right here today, that have different strata. And there's, ooh, there's a little poke and a prod inside. And ooh, I don't, I, you know, you've got opinions about it too. But we, we quickly gravitate to things that we think make us pure, keep us undefiled. And then we sort of hold on to those things in such a way that it becomes legalistic. We are all really good becoming legalists. I know this in my own life. Let me give you an example. Okay, so last year we went through this terrible drought, remember? And, and thank the Lord, Jesus, thank you for sending rain to the northern California. And, and, and we're not out of the drought, really. Now they're debating, like, wow, we had a really good year. Should we in, you know, do, like, water rationing, all this stuff? Anyway, so all last year we let our lawn die, our whole yard. We stopped water. Everything went dead. And I found myself driving around Castro Valley and seeing people watering their lawns <laughs> and kind of feeling a little bit like, hey, I'm, I'm letting my yard die. Why don't you let your yard die too? <laughs> you know, and you kind of have this, you know, this kind of like, you start feeling a little superior, you know? And then I'd kind of console myself. Hey, I saved like 150 bucks on water last year. But now I'm putting in new plants with all the plants that are dead and it's cost me like 4,000 bucks. I'm going like, well, what's, you know, what's the equity in all this? And, but I'm just like, I'm just 
being real with you that sometimes I look and I just so quickly can start judging people and God had to work on me like they, hey like well maybe they're not using as much water over here or who cares I mean like you know like what business is that of yours anyway see and so I okay God you dealt with me on that it's like oh it's all right so, you know, we go through this kind of stuff. I'm just simply giving you an example that it's really easy to come to a conviction of something that you believe in and you start judging everybody else that doesn't follow that conviction. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute, time out. Time out. Here's, here's what we're getting at here. If you're taking notes, what I want you to see what comes next in this text, verses 4 through 9, is that the only line we should fear crossing is what's revealed in God's word. That's the line. And that's something that we should be concerned about. There are, there are rules in the Bible that we should be really concerned about. Let's start with the big one. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's a big rule. That's what God wants us to do. And how about this? Love your neighbor as yourself. And notice how Jesus responds to these guys. Because see, the problem is that you can become blind to the line you've crossed yourself if you're not focused on just what the Word of God says. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, he says, uh, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus comes right back at them. This is no soft touch. Jesus is not just sort of like going, well, I'm sorry you see it that way. Jesus is saying, wait a minute. No, you're telling, you're telling me that these guys are breaking the tradition of the elders while you're breaking the law of God? What law was it, were they breaking? Jesus pulled out one. He could have pulled out several. There was a law in the Old Testament, Exodus 20. You know the fifth commandment. You should honor your father and mother. And this was a commandment. And so Jesus pulls it out because he, sees, he observes something going on with the tradition of the elders whereby people that had, here's what, here's what that command's about. That command's about, as a child, respecting your parents. And all the parents said, amen. amen. <laughs> yes. And then as you grow older as a child, it's not so much, it's still respecting, but it's also caring for your parents. And all aging parents said, amen. amen. <laughs> Kids are going, what did I get into here? The command was to respect and care for. So Jesus observes that under the litany of the Mishnah, there were rabbis who said this, oh, you've got resources that your parents need? Oh, we could use it a lot more in the temple. So here's, here's what you do. You say, this is, I'm calling this a gift devoted to God. So you could reserve it, and by the way, this is the law of Korban, Mark 7 actually uses that word, it's the Aramaic for the word Korban. This was a law of the of religious leaders, that if you had something that was needed in a way that would help, but you didn't want to give it away, the way you got out of that was you just said, you declared it a gift for God. So you could put it into like this, like say you had something that your neighbor wanted to borrow, but you weren't sure they were going to take care of it. And so they come over one day and they're standing in the garage and they go, hey, I noticed that you have this, you know, tool or whatever. Could I borrow it? Or you have this nice boat. Could I borrow it? With, you know, whatever. And you say, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I would love to lend it to you, but it's a gift to God. And it must be used solely for his purposes. Okay, so I know this is getting a little far-fetched, but you can see how goofy this would become. So back to the law, people that knew that they had to care for their parents Instead of honoring their parents with giving them what they needed in that society, your parents lived with you until, if they needed to, they would live with you until they passed on. 
And, and, you know, that was a way of socially caring for the elderly. And in our society, it's a lot different, uh, but this principle still applies to believers. We respect our parents and we care for our parents in the most reasonable and tangible ways that we can. But you could get out of that in this day by just saying, oh, you know, sorry, mom and dad, the bank account's frozen because it's a gift devoted to God. And basically, you could still use it for yourself until you died, and then you could send it on ahead to the gift of the temple. This was something that was happening in this day. And Jesus said, you have, you have broken the very command of God for the sake of your tradition. And he says, you do many things like that. Mark 7's passage. You do many things like that. There are so many ways. We are so good at figuring out loopholes to not do the will of God and to come up a way of skirting it and freezing uh, you know, whatever our resources are so that we can have more for ourselves. And Jesus says, you break the command of God. The only, the only issue that Jesus tells us that we ought to fear, the only line we should fear crossing is, is what's found right here in the Word of God. Otherwise, if you're taking notes, otherwise we're likely to become religious people concerned only with keeping external rules. Notice verse 7. Jesus says, you hypocrites. The Greek word hypocrite. It means literally to wear a mask. This was a, use, a word that was used in theatrical times. You wore a mask. You were not who you really were. Uh, you were pretending to be someone else. And Jesus calls these religious leaders hypocrites. He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. And then he gives verses 8 and 9. Uh, this is a retelling of Isaiah 29. And this is, this is a beautiful description of religious people versus people that are in covenant relationship with God. What do religious people do? They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far. They worship God, but it's in vain. And their teachings are taught by men, not by God. It's a great description of a religious person. And I, I have observed religion all over our community. And there are some of us today, I hate to say this to you, but it's important as a pastor to say this to the flock. There are some of us here today who are far more religious than we are in a covenant relationship with God. We are, keep, we are so committed to keeping rules and we become judges of everybody else that's not keeping the rules that we're keeping and we're looking over everybody. We're like these little secret police. And, and we're, our world is perfect because we've justified ourselves in everything that we think is important to do in life. And we look only upon judgment and, and, uh, toward others. And it's just possible that there, in a crowd this size, there's some of us who have never passed from being a religious person who's only concerned with rules into a life of covenant relationship with the living God where we say, God, everything belongs to you. I'm your vessel. I'm whatever you need me to be. I'm, I'm your tool in your hand. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do. And yes, we're going to stumble and fall and trip over our feet. And we, we're just miserable mistakes all the time in our lives, right? But we still keep getting up and we say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for being merciful to me, Lord. Just thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me regardless of who I am. That that's, that's the, this is the beauty of grace, which we'll get to a little bit more in a moment. comes down to this last little thing, verses 10 through 20, that we realize ultimately or therefore fundamentally that no amount of religious conformity addresses our need for heart transformation. I mean, you can, you can be as 
stickly as you can be about the rules and still not have any transformation in your life. What Jesus fundamentally is teaching here is the difference between religion and relationship. And let's, let's come back to this idea of religion for a moment. What does religion do? The philosophy of religion, watch this, is what I would call an outside-in philosophy. In other words, you just conform yourself to the rules long enough, intensely enough, sincerely enough. You keep working on that outside stuff, the externals in your life, and eventually, eventually something happens inside. Eventually, you'll get right with God. Eventually, God will be appeased. Eventually, God will say good. Eventually, God will let you into heaven. You just work hard, work hard, work hard. Work harder and harder. And it's a treadmill that we're on. That's what religion does. But here's the beautiful thing about the grace of Jesus Christ and the, and the faith that we know as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is not an outside in, it's an inside out. It starts with the heart. And how many times we've already seen this in the book of Matthew. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Don't turn there now, but just think about it. Matthew 5 through 7. It's all about the heart. You have heard it said this, 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 but I say unto you this. It's, all, it's not external rules. It's internal transformation. And around here, we, we look at transformation in a really big way. This is our purpose statement as a church, life transformation through following Christ. That's huge. It's so important. And we choose that because that's what we see in this covenant relationship with God. We need a transformation of heart. And so Jesus says, here's our problem. The problem is, is the heart because it's out of the heart. Look at, look at down verse 18. It's out of the heart that comes things like uh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. By the way, verse 19, 18 and 19 there, just maybe put in the margin of your Bible, this is not an exhaustive list. Jesus is just giving drop-down menu categories. I mean, there's so many things that you could fill in under all of these things. And what he's saying is, we're all, our nature, all of us in our nature, on our own, are a miserable mess. We are broken and stained, and beyond repair, apart from the healing, transformative work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it starts there. If you have your Bible, I want you just to quickly go over to Romans chapter 3. Because, and this is the whole book of Romans, but I'm going to zero in on chapter 3 because it kind of sums it up. Romans 3, 21. He spent the first three chapters talking about how fitting God's judgment is upon the sinner, of which all of us must claim we are sinners. And when it looks like all hope is lost, here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. Verse 21. But now, Paul writes, a righteousness from God. What are these next three words? Apart from what? Law. A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Oh, so this has been what it's about, what it has been about from the very beginning. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, say the last four words with me, to all who believe. Wow. That's the gospel. The gospel declares us righteous in God's eyes apart from our adherence to external law. 
Now, if you get that, if you understand that, and if you've embraced that, you've passed from religion into a covenant relationship with God. But even those who have made that passage, like myself, are sometimes pulled back in or our pride gets a hold of our hearts and we start going back to keeping the rules as a means of getting right with God. And that's why all of us this morning need a fresh, perennial dosage of the gospel message in our hearts to remember that we are not set free, we are not forgiven, we are not made right with God because of something we have done, but because of what Jesus has already done. The cross and the empty tomb. It wasn't just that Jesus died for our sins, but that He rose again from the grave. And in His resurrection, we know that we have the promise of the power to live this new life. So we go back to the rules of God and we say, Lord, we want to keep them. But whether we keep them or not, on our best day, we're not going to keep all of them. We rely not on the keeping of those laws, but on our faith that is in you that has kept all the law. And by that, we are made righteous in his sight. So Jesus is bottom lining this whole thing to say, you know, you could be mixed up because of rabbinical traditionalism, first century, or you could be mixed up because of religious externalism of the 21st century. And today, I'm going to just invite you, compel you, to put all the eggs of how righteousness comes into your life into the basket of God's rich and glorious provision through faith in Jesus. And then you leave without a sense of performance. How well did I do this week? I mean, if you really want to drill down into it, how well did I do this week? <laughs> Not so good. Had some great days, had some bad days. We're never going to, in this life, we're never going to say, man, we nailed it. We hit it out of the park. But do we put our heads down? Do we mope around? No, because we live in the gospel of grace. We are fully accepted and loved as Christ followers, no matter how well we did on the report card. God's grace is sufficient. And that's where we need to live. So I don't know. I hope this encourages you. This is... This is for the believer in Christ. It's also for the person that's not in Christ today. Notice in verse 10, Jesus says, Jesus called to the crowd. I think the crowd needs to hear this. There's all kinds of people out there today that are not sitting here knowing this teaching, and they're still living by trying to make up the rules and live by the rules. And we need to get the gospel out there and tell people that they can keep trying to keep the rules, but the rules are not going to save them because they're never going to keep the rules enough, but there's one who has, and his name is Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Let's go to the Lord.